Last week, we looked at Scripture alone, sola scriptura. This week, we're looking at sola fide, faith alone. We're going to see what that principle is all about. But just to kind of maybe, if you're wondering, why are we talking about the the Protestant Reformation? I mean, why why are we using that as a grid for what we're going to look at today in the era in which we live? You know, the best way I could think about it is, uh, is that history matters, and where we come from matters. The, the, how, how are we going to connect ourselves? Because we weren't the first people to ever have a church, right? We, we, we have a tradition. I mean, there's something that's coming down to us from somewhere. And what is that? And the easiest way to trace us back to is to the Protestant Reformation. Why are we not Roman Catholic? Why are, why are we believing the things that we do believe? And these five solas, these five alones, really help us understand that if Jesus is the foundation of the house, then I tend to think of the solas are the studs, the framework of the house that are gonna, we're going to build around this. There's certainly the Bible says more than these five things, but those are, are essential building materials for the house that is the Christian faith. And this one today, sola fide, this is the one that launched the whole deal. This is the, whole, this is the spark that lit the fire, the bonfire of the Protestant Reformation. This is what Charles Spurgeon said about it. If you don't know who Charles Spurgeon is, he was a pastor in London, 1800s. He died in 1892, and he wrote and spoke. Big influence on me, um, godly preacher and pastor. He said this about the, the sola fide. He said, this one sentence, the just shall live by faith, that sentence produced the Reformation. Out of this one line, as apart from as from the opening of one of the apocalyptic seals, talking about the book of Revelation, came forth all that sounding of gospel trumpets and all that singing of gospel songs, which made in the world a sound like the noise of many waters. This one seed, faith alone, forgotten and hidden away in the dark medieval times, was brought forth, dropped into the human heart, made by the Spirit of God to grow and in the end, to produce great results. And he's dead right. That is exactly what we're going to be looking at this morning. The seed of the just shall live by faith. The principle that man is reconciled to God, is justified to God by faith alone. That is a massive concept. This is the reason Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses on the door at Wittenberg. It's the reason men were put to death by the Roman church, but we have to consider why was this such a big deal? Because when we think about faith alone, I mean, we're, if you've been familiar with the church or you've grown up in the church at all, uh, that seems pretty normal. That seems pretty obvious, right? Well, of course, yeah, yeah you got to believe in John three sixteen. All who believe you know, have eternal life. But believe, faith, yeah, well, we get that. But what was going on at that time, the 1500s, to make this such a novel idea? to make this such an earth-shattering idea to where the people who were believing it, people who were living it, were being hunted down and put to death. Why? What was going on? The Roman church at the time, which was the church, there was no other denomination, there was nothing else. It was the Eastern church had split by then, but it was essentially the same idea. Just one was in the East, one was in the West. But Europe knew nothing but the Roman church. What were they teaching at that time? They were teaching essentially faith plus. Now, we're talking about faith alone. They were teaching a version of faith plus. That when you have faith, when you, when you have faith in Jesus, what it does is it infuses you with a little bit of grace. Not enough to get you to heaven. It's a good start. But it just infuses a little bit of grace into you. Not enough to get you all the way, but fear not. There are other ways that you can add grace to yourselves. The Roman church taught that there were seven sacraments, seven ways that you could get more grace to fill your bucket all the way up because you can't get into heaven unless you got a full bucket of grace. They don't use the word bucket. That's my Texas way of explaining it. But essentially, they had these seven sacraments. So that's baptism, confirmation, penance, marriage, uh, holy orders, like meaning becoming a priest, the Eucharist, the Lord's table is another word for it, or, and the anointing of the sick. Now, we as Protestants, we only see two sacraments, the Lord's table and baptism. Roman church had seven, still does have seven, 
And you need each of these. And the more you participate in them, you get more grace kind of put into your bucket. You fill that bucket all the way up, you get to go to heaven. Now this led, at this time in the 1500s, to an ambitious priest named Johann Tetzel. Doesn't that just sound like a bad guy? Johann Tetzel. He gets this idea around the sacrament of penance. There's this concept called indulgences. And he gets this idea to get really capitalistic with this. He's like, hey, you know what? Pope said they wanted to build this thing called St. Peter's Basilica, big old church in in, uh, Italy. And he goes, you know what? If I sell these indulgences, I can make money, and then I'll be seen as contributing more money to the building of that church. Pope will like me and be glad, proud of my performance. So this is what he did. An indulgence was something that you could buy, and all you would get in return was a piece of paper that said, some of your sin has been paid for. Some of your sin has been uh, indulged. Like God will indulge some of this sin and get rid of it for you. So you can buy that, and then now you get more grace. You're closer to heaven now because you've bought these indulgences. And, and then he's, he got this idea, Mr. Tetzel did, that you could buy these for your dead relatives in purgatory. Now imagine this, you're, you're walking around racked with guilt, and then, then this priest is out on the corner selling these things. You can get some of your guilt alleviated. Sure, I'll shell out for that. But then when he brings in the dead relative things, he can just say, how can you sit there in your nice clothes, eating all your fancy food? Grandmother, your dear sweet granny is being tortured in purgatory right now. And if you just bought an indulgence, you could get her out of there a little bit sooner. Well, then you're like, well, my dear sweet granny, I got to get her out. If I can, I got to get her out. And then he even came up with a little jingle. You can read this in history books. I'm not making this up. This is the first jingle in modern marketing. He said, when the coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Isn't that nice sounding? When when it clanks around in there, the angel gets his wings, basically. You spring out of purgatory. So then eventually, this is where it came down to a young Augustinian monk named Martin Luther was reading the book of Romans and said, that does not jive with this. And I'm reading this for the first time. And then he, that's what catapults the whole deal, the whole big reformation, the splits and the fighting and all those kinds of things. It led him down this road towards the biblical truth of salvation is by faith alone. Not faith plus anything else, but faith alone. So this doctrine, sola fide, faith alone, is the central tenet of the Christian church Martin Luther said that this is, the, this is the doctrine on which the church stands or falls. You get this wrong, you fall. You get this right, you stand. John Calvin said that this is the main hinge upon which Christianity turns. If this is not there, the door falls off the wall. The whole thing comes crashing down. It's the heart of the gospel because this is the question to be asked. How can anyone be justified in the presence of a holy and righteous God? That's the question that we have to ask. How does a wretched sinner attain righteousness that's on the level of God's? How's that going to happen? And that's what they were trying to answer the Roman church with the seven sacraments, but how are we going to answer that? How does the Bible answer that? Because if we don't have the answer to that question, then we have nothing to offer a dying world. We have nothing. We can give them nothing. We can give no hope. We can spread no joy and no cheer. All we have It's just another ideology on how to conduct your life and live your best life now and have your family work the way you want it to work. We're just another self-help group, another social club if we can't offer the answer to man's biggest problem. And the scriptures do. But if our answer is not God's answer, then it's impotent to save and it doesn't do anything. That's why we begin with sola scriptura. We gotta find the answer in here. That there's got to be a source of inerrant truth And it's in there that we'll be able to find the answer to how is man justified before God? How can wretched sinners, how can a perfect God allow even one wretched sinner for a nanosecond in his presence, let alone for all of eternity? We got to have an answer for that question. So we're going to look at six concepts that are integral for understanding the doctrine of sola fide. The first one is this. The righteousness of God. Now, now we know we're talking about the gospel, right? When we talk about faith alone, 
we know that's about the gospel, that that's how people become saved, that that's how sinners become righteous in the, God, in, in the eyes of God or, or attain that level of righteousness. But where do we start when we're talking about the gospel? We have to start with God. And not just God in a general sense, we have to start with God as the perfectly righteous one. See, the, the gospel is not a geyser. The gospel is a waterfall. When you're sitting on top of a geyser and you want to get to the heights, you, you have to just figure out how to get that pressure underneath you released and then launch you up. So you're looking downward. But that's not how the gospel works. The gospel is a waterfall. We're standing at the bottom of a bone-dry chasm, and if water doesn't come off of that ridge, then we're going to remain bone-dry. Water has to come down to us. We don't find the water within and go up to God. So we have to start with God. And praise be to God that his water does fall. We're going to look at Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. The Apostle Paul says this. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, and here's the kicker, in it the righteousness of God is revealed. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. It's made known. You can see it. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. So what does it mean that the gospel reveals the righteousness of God? Well, before we can answer that question, we've got to ask another question, even more simple question. What is the righteousness of God? I mean, that sounds like something pretty churchy that we all kind of get. Like, yeah, that's right, God, righteousness. That's all words that we're okay with and we use in gatherings like this. And, but what is it? If you had to explain it to a kid, what is the righteousness of God? How, how would you explain it? Well, I, th I found the most confusing way possible so that you'll remember it. This is how it goes. The righteousness of God is the righteousness that his righteousness requires him to require. Lost you, didn't I? <laughs> Let me say it again. The righteousness of God is the righteousness that his righteousness requires him to require. God is so righteous that by his very nature, he must require equivalent righteousness of anyone who's going to be in his presence. That's what that's saying. That's actually an old Puritanism. I didn't come up with it. Somebody much smarter and older than I did do that. But God is so righteous, he cannot lower his standards in any way for anyone or anything that's going to be around him in his full acceptance for eternity. He can't do that. You have to have that level of righteousness. So when you think about Christianity, you don't have to be as good as Billy Graham to get into heaven. You don't have to be as good as R.C. Sproul. You don't have to be as good as St. Augustine. You don't have to be as good as Corey Ten Boom. You don't have to be as good as the Apostle Paul. You don't even have to be as good as Scott Lowry. You just have to be as good as God. That's it. One guy. You have to be as good as God. The gospel reveals that God is infinitely righteous and his same level of righteousness is required by all who will be accepted by him. See, but here's the problem with that. This is the second point, the sinfulness of man. I'm not as righteous as God. If that's the requirement, I don't meet it. I don't even come close to meeting it. I'm not even remotely close to being in the same universe as meeting it. I mean, this is as ridiculous as me waltzing down to Arlington and to AT&T Stadium on game day and telling Jerry Jones, you know what, Jerry, I got it this week. I don't know if you know this, but in college, I won the C-League Intramural Flag Football Championship. So you can tell Dak to sit down, take a few notes. I'll handle it from here. We're not even in the same universe. But that, multiply that to, to an, an infinite level, and that's what we're talking about. It's, and it's not just that... Our righteousness, naturally, my righteousness is pathetically in inadequate. That's true. But it's that I'm actively working in the opposite direction of God's righteousness. Listen to what Psalm 130 verse 3 says. The psalmist writes, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, meaning if you should count sins, O Lord, who could stand? God, if you're going to count sins, if you're going to bring that record really in front of us, when I'm in front of you, who can, who can be there without being instantaneously incinerated? 
Who can survive that? That's what the psalmist says. This is true for all humanity, down to our DNA. None of us can stand before God on our own and live because none of us is naturally righteous and none of us is naturally inclined toward goodness in any way. Listen to Romans 3, 10 through 12. As it is written, Paul says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That's describing everybody, all, no one. The Greek word for all means everyone, means all. That this is what Paul is saying, that this is all. Of, and it's not as if, well, okay, you know, it's a bummer, but if I hadn't been affected by my environment, if I hadn't had the parents that I had, if I hadn't grown up in the way that I did, then maybe I would have had a better shot because people are generally good on their own. Well, the Bible refutes that too. Psalm 51, verse 5, David says this, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He's not saying that his mother sinned in his conception. He's saying that when he was conceived, he was a sinner. When he was, was birthed, he was brought forth in iniquity. Now you're saying to yourself, man, when are we going to get to this sola fide part? This sounds like sola depresse. <laughs> the thing is, it's important to set this up to make clear the realities of God and the realities of man, because if you don't know the bad news, then the good news seems like okay news. You got to know the bad news, otherwise there's no point. If we don't know the depth of our depravity and the height of God's righteousness, then we develop no saving understanding of the gospel. The glory of sola fide, it shines most brightly against the darkest of backgrounds. See, somebody has to know that they're doomed before they ever long to be saved. You got to know you're drowning if you're, not, if you're ever going to reach out for the lifeguard's rescue tube. You have to know these things. You have to ask, is there any way, you have to be brought to the point where if that's the reality, God is that righteous, I am that unrighteous and depraved, how can the chasm ever be bridged? Is there any way to get across that? We have to wrestle with those things. You have to get somebody there. Is there anyone whom God accepts? Look at Psalm 32. David, again, he writes, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. We should read that, those two verses and be shouting, who is that person? Who is that one? God's describing that there is somebody whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered, that they're not counted against them. Who is that person and how do I become that person? You're just saying that that person exists. I want that person to be me. See, now, now you're primed to hear the truth and to revel in the glory of what we've been calling sola fide, faith alone is how we're justified. But before we can figure that all the way out, dig into the passages that clearly lay out this precious truth, we have to define some terms because I fear, and also based off of experience, that these terms are terms that fit into the category of, yeah, we all know what we're talking about. We all know what faith is. We all know what alone means. We all know what justification is. Yeah, yeah, we all just kind of, we all just kind of get it. But we need to go back and carefully define these things. Otherwise, we can mislead ourselves and we can mislead others. Because when we assume you know what I'm talking about, I'm usually wrong, right? And the first time that my wife was going to ever come visit, we were just dating. She was going to come visit my parents' house while I was there. I, like a, like a rogue gentleman, when she called for directions, I woke up and answered the phone and then gave it to my mom. Because the directions that I had given her were something like this. Okay, you're on I-35 coming south. We live in Waco. You're, she was coming from Denton. You're on I-35 coming south. You're going to take uh, Valley Mills. And then you're going to ride Valley Mills for a while. You're going to get in the middle of a bridge. And before you get to the middle of the bridge, you're going to see Katie's custard on the right side. That's how you know you're getting close. In the middle of the bridge, there's an exit. Take that exit. And then you're going to go around and underneath it on that road, the first light, take a left and go all the way down until you see H-E-B. And, when you get, and then she was apparently confused. 
by my directions. But that made perfect sense to a Wacoan. I know what Katie's Custers is, and I know where that H-E-B is. That all makes sense. Yeah, the middle of that bridge. Yeah, that's, and, and then she just said, why don't you just tell me exit Franklin and take Franklin all the way down to Highway 84 and then take the exit? Because I was like, that's, you know, you just should have known what I was talking about. And we could do that in the church when we go, yeah, I know what faith means. I know what justification means. Well, do we? And let's define these terms. We need to regularly revisit key, definite, key words in the Christian faith and key terms in the Christian faith. Otherwise, we can get off course. So the first word we're going to define is faith. And faith is important. I think R.C. Sproul has a very helpful definition. It's kind of a three-part definition for what is faith. Faith, we're talking about saving faith. Faith that justifies. Saving faith has three elements, that there's the content of what is to be believed. You have to know the facts. If I don't know the name of Jesus, I don't know that he's God's son, I don't know that people are sinners, I don't know that we live in rebellion against God, then how can I ever get to the point where I trust it? You have to know the content. You have to give the facts, right? So that's the first part. Second part is assent to those being true. Yeah, that is true, that, that God is the creator of the universe and he's sovereign over all things and all of humanity is his creation and has rebelled against him. And, and I believe that. And the only way to bridge that gap and to satisfy the requirements of the gospel and God's righteousness is faith in Jesus Christ. So you have to assent to that being true. But that's also not enough. The last element is personal trust. Personal trust. So you have content, assent, and trust. Think about it like this. If you're going to go rappelling, I highly recommend you don't. Why would you hang off the back of a cliff for fun? But if you were to go rappelling, you would have to go to, I would assume, you would go and you would have the climber instructor would have you there and would sit you down and say, hey, this is all the climbing gear. This is the rope. This is the tensile strength of a rope. We could lower a Jeep down the edge of this cliff with this rope. It's so strong. This is your harness. It's made of this kind of nylon canvas. These straps, they're, they're weighted and they're tested for these kinds of things. This is your carabiner. This is your helmet. These are all of these things that are going to allow you to walk backwards off of this cliff. So you've got to hear all of that, right? There's another step. Another step is you've got to put that gear on, right? You've got to get that harness on and get it tight, cinch real tight, get that carabiner on, let them thread the rope through in the right way with the right knot. But are you repelling yet? You're not. I mean, you know the truth, the content. You've assented that they're true because you put it on. But you're not at the bottom of the cliff yet. Why not? Because you haven't leaned your bottom over the rear of that cliff and put all your weight on that rope that somebody else is holding the other side to. See, that's personal trust. That's walking down the cliff now. That's what faith is. It's a Westminster Confession written by Protestants just a, a few years after the Reformation in the 1600s. It's a doctrinal statement, and they said this about faith. It said, but the principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. So the same thing. They say accepting, receiving, resting, just the same thing as content, assent, and trust. But let's just let the Bible define it for us too, right? That this is the supreme definition above all things. Hebrews 11.1 one. Now, faith is assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. How do I know what things I'm assured of and things I'm convicted of? I have to have read them in the scriptures. That's how I know those things, and that's how I can have faith in those things. So that's faith. But justification is another term that we have to define because I'm saying it a lot, and you might not be very familiar with it. When you think justification... Think salvation. But justification is a very particular part of what salvation is, and it's a part that Paul looks at a lot in books of the Bible like Romans and Galatians. Justification is a legal term. It, it should draw up the scenery of a courtroom for us in our minds. To be justified is to be declared righteous. Not made righteous, declared to be righteous. And not just by a friend or somebody else, but you're declared righteous by a judge who has full power to punish under the law. Full authority given unto him, and he says, not 
guilty. That's what justification is, to be declared righteous. Now, alone, so justified by faith, alone. What does it mean to be alone? See, this is where we differ from the Roman church. This is where we differ from Christian cults like the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. See, Rome says that justification is not to be declared righteous, but to be made righteous. That's a big difference. Because if you've got to be made righteous, it means you have to actually become as righteous as God. Justification by faith alone that we believe, sola fide, is God just declares you righteous, though you're not. Romans is a different definition. No, you have to be that righteous. That's why everyone who dies goes to purgatory. You know why the doctrine of purgatory exists? Because they created the doctrine of justification, meaning that you had to be made righteous. And nobody dies righteous enough. So you have to go to purgatory. You have to purge the sin that you still have in you in a waiting period before you get to heaven. Because you're still dirty. You're not perfectly righteous yet. So if you're Mother Teresa, you get to skip purgatory. But if you're a regular Joe Schmo Catholic, you go to purgatory for a long time to get all that sin out of you. It's got to be purged out because you can't get to heaven unless you're actually righteous. Now, we, we reject that doctrine not because we don't like it and because it sounds scary, but because the Bible doesn't teach it. We're going to get to those verses here in a minute. But the Mormons also deny this declaration of righteousness as well. They're like, well, yeah, you've got to be faithful alone. Well, I mean, faith, but you've got to do some stuff too. But they just have, they don't, they have no doctrine of purgatory. They just say, if you die as a good Mormon, you, you are righteous enough for God. And then you get to go to heaven. So the Reformation brought to the forefront this precious biblical truth that salvation is by faith alone, that faith doesn't begin the process of justification, and faith isn't a part of the process of justification. It is justification. And that's where we're going to get into the scriptures because something's got to happen. Because now if you're thinking, if you're following me and you're being honest with yourself, you've got a problem. You've got an inconsistency that you're thinking of in your mind. If God is perfect, God is always just, he never miscarries justice. And if he's the judge, if he's constantly letting people go unpunished for what they've done, how can he be a just judge how can he be a good judge? Would anybody vote for that judge in your county? Yeah, we want the guy who lets criminals go all the time. Does that promote goodness and health in your society? Well, how can God be a just God, but also be pardoning everybody, declaring sinners to be righteous? Well, this is how. What if? What if the judge punished someone else? What if, what if one law was broken one sentence was demanded, and there was one innocent person. And if I had done that crime, then that innocent person could take that sentence, pay that debt to society, and the judge would have punished the, the law being broken. He just punished an innocent person and let the guilty one go free. So that's how that can happen. If, if somehow the judge could transfer the guilt from the guilty onto an innocent party, well, see, then he, could, then he could do it and still be what Romans 3, 26 says, just in the justifier. That it was to show, this is what you missed the previous verse, that with Jesus dying on the cross, it was to show his righteousness at the present time. Why? So that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That he's not, he's not warping the law or lowering the standards. He's just transferring the guilt. See, something is having to happen. For us to be justified, the great exchange has to happen. The great exchange, our sin must be put onto Jesus, though he be innocent. The only innocent person in history, and his righteousness has to be put onto us, the unquestionably guilty 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and what? Live to righteousness. Achieve that level of righteousness. By his wounds we've been healed. We got his righteousness, he got our sin. Look at 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for sins. How did it work? The righteous for the unrighteous. 
or some translations that you might have, you have an NASB, it says, just for the unjust. That he was exchanging his perfect righteousness for our sinfulness. Why? So that he might bring us to God. We cannot be brought to God unless this exchange happens. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake, he, meaning God the Father, made him the Son to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the what? Righteousness of God. That exchange has to happen. Jesus didn't know sin. He had to become sin. We didn't know the righteousness of God. We had to become that. The exchange had to happen. It's called, it's under the the, uh, moniker of imputation. Our sin imputed to Christ, his righteousness imputed to us. So then how does this exchange happen? This is the big kicker. Maybe this exists, but how does it apply to us? How do we get to partake in that exchange? How are we counted righteous? Genesis 15, 6. It goes back to our, our father of faith, Abraham. Genesis 15, 6. I memorized it in NASB. It's going to pop up in the ESV, though. And Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him or reckoned to him as righteousness. That's the simplicity of the whole thing. Everybody from beginning to end, Genesis Revelation has been saved by faith, and Abraham's the prime example. He believed God, and what did God say? I'm going to count that as righteousness. That's salvation. That's how we're all saved. Not just unique to Genesis, it's unique to Habakkuk, where you all had your quiet time this morning, right? We all got up and read Habakkuk today. But Habakkuk 2.4, God says the righteous shall live by faith. Who gets righteousness? Those who live by faith. And Paul quotes that. When we read earlier in Romans 1, 16 and 17. But look at this, Romans 3, 28. For we hold that one is justified. We should read that and go, how? Uh, how? We hold that one is justified. How? By faith apart from works of the law. Now, did you catch that last phrase? This is another point. It's got to be to the exclusion of works. Romans 3.28, it says, apart from works of the law. See, sola fide, faith alone, the biblical principle, is antithetical to any kind of combination of works with faith, of earning righteousness. The gospel insists that we come to the foot of the cross empty-handed and we remain empty-handed in the sense that I'm not like going, okay, well, you filled me up a little bit, and then I'll, I'll put some of my own in there. No, you come empty-handed and you remain empty-handed. It's intentionally humiliating. I add nothing to this. I bring nothing to this. I contribute nothing to this. I come empty-handed because the gospel insists that. It, to add work to the gospel, it's not just biblically inaccurate. It's not just like a wrong way to look at things. It's blasphemous and it's condemnable. Someone once said that the that adding works to the gospel is grand larceny on a celestial scale. You are robbing God from glory that's rightly due him. How are you doing that? Well, if I had to add works into my salvation in order to make it finally complete, then that means one of two things are true or both of them are true. Something was deficient in God and something was already naturally good in me. So I get a little bit of praise because I I, I did some stuff. I don't get more than God. No, I'm not going to get more than God. But I get some because I did contribute a little bit. It wouldn't have happened if I didn't put in my you know, 10% or my 20%. So I get a little bit of praise, which I'm stealing from God. Celestial grand larceny. It's not just mere error. It's actual evil. If your good works, if your law-keeping is a part of your salvation, then that means that you're commendable on some level and God is not on some level. So this is what we have to realize. What did you contribute to your salvation? Nothing. You just contributed the sin that made it, made it necessary. And it's like me when I try to fix and or do anything around my house, car, computer. I just ruin it every single time. And I've made my fair share of messes and you know what? I've never cleaned up most of any of those. I have a friend who's a mechanic and he has a t-shirt that says, I'm here because you broke something. And he's dead right. I, I don't know what to do. But I, I made it. The only reason we're having this interaction is because of my ineptitude of, mixing, of, of fixing or working on or mechanic skills in a car. 
So that's why you're here. That's why we're interchanging. My fault. I didn't add anything to this whatsoever. So on the other hand, y'all be praying for my family because if I can't preach, then we're going to starve. We'll all die. We have, I got nothing else we can do. But the perfect passage for this, Romans 4, turn there if you have your Bibles. Otherwise, it'll be up on the screen. 1 through 5, these short verses, it just explains and it obliterates any possibility of you trying to add works to your salvation using Abraham as the prime example. Look at verse 1. He says, What shall we say that Abraham has gained our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, meaning his works played a role in his being justified, he's got something to boast about. He can, be, he can brag, not before God, but he can brag before us, according to verse 2. But verse 3 says, For what does the Scripture say? What does the Bible say again? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, verse 4, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. If you work for an hour, you get paid for an hour. You do that. Does your boss say, hey, here's a gift every two weeks? Like, yeah, hey, just a little present for you. And no, I earned that. Give me it. But verse 5, and to the one who does not work, but rather believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. You get God's level righteousness by not working, instead believing. That's the glory of the gospel, not earned. And we, (laughs) doesn't that sound wonderful? Who would ever want to mess that up? Who would ever want to change that or warp that or add anything to it or subtract from it? Well, lots of people actually. Like one of the reasons that sola fide is what it is, we have to defend it. We have to contend for it. After the Protestant Reformation was over, not over, but after the, the big hump had kind of gotten over and, you know, got a hundred years under your belt now, the, the, those who were subscribing to that, that interpretation of the scriptures as being true, they came up with another uh, Latin phrase that we're not going to study. We're going to mention now. It's called semper reformanda. If you're a Marine, you know that first word, semper, right? I mean, always, Latin for always, because their phrase is semper fi or semper fidelis or fidelis, always faithful. Well, they must have stole that from the Reformation. But semper reformanda means always reforming. And always reforming doesn't mean we're always changing and growing and adapting and making it new and fresh and, and making the Bible seem relevant and adding new things in. No, no, that is what it means. It means we're always going back to the standard. Where do we get off? Where did we get offline? How do we, how do we get away from the biblical truths? Always reforming, going back to the form. When I was first married, my, uh, my job was junior high football coach slash PE teacher. And with that high, lofty title came the explicit duty of painting the football field every week. That sounds glorious. I know it does. But when you're painting and there's standing water and the head coach says, you still got to get out there and paint. I'm, I'm painting wet. This is, this is water. He's like, no, nope, you still got to paint it. Get out there and paint it all the time. You start trying to cut corners. And so this is what I was, I was like, you know what? I think I could just follow the lines I made last week and we'll be all right. Because otherwise, this is what you got to do. You got to get a string out that's 100 yards long and you got to stake it on one end and stake it on the other end and you got to follow that string. Only way to get a straight line. And I was like, you know, this is miserable. I made a straight line last week. This week, I'll just follow that line, and it'll be straight. Did that for two or three weeks in a row, and we had significant home field vantage because you would see a bow in the line. You're like, run that way, and we'll get closer to the first down if you get tackled on this side of the field because eventually your lines start getting way off because you're, you're hitting bumps with the little sprayer thing, and the line you made wasn't exactly straight, but it was as straight as it could be when the line was ran out. So if you want straight lines, you got to restring every single five-yard line. That's what Semper Reformanda means. That's what we have to do as Christians. So we got to come back. This is the straight line. What is salvation? Not what I've been taught, not what I've been hearing. I mean, those things are good, the things I'm reading or people are tweeting. You could be blessed by those things, but this is the straight line that we have to kind of always come back to because there are really two ditches 
running alongside the road of sola fide that we can fall into, depending upon our personality, maybe our upbringing. One of those is legalism. The other one is antinomianism. To the ditch called legalism, if we're bent towards achieving and following rules and meeting markers and earning, that's our ditch if we're not careful. See, legalism says that there's something for you to do along with faith in order to be saved. And it could be said sneakily, but faith plus anything equals nothing every time. That, 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 the easiest way to sniff out legalism in yourself or in somebody else is to ask yourself or ask somebody else, explain me the gospel. And if they say, well, the gospel is what it is, is that, you know, God created everything and then Adam and Eve fell and we've, you know, their sin's been imputed to us. We're born sinners and then we need salvation that comes through Jesus alone. So we believe in him and then we're made new creations uh, and, and that's what salvation is. And then when they get to that point and, or yourself gets to that point and then you go, anything else? Is that it? And I've done that to people and it makes them squirm. Like, well, uh, you know, like... You know, you gotta go to church and you gotta pray and you gotta, you know, do all these things. And I, nope. It was it. You you were done when you finished. You shouldn't have let me prod you along to go, ah, yeah, you gotta, you know, some other things. When you do that, then you found a legalist. See, legalism at its heart, it conflates justification and sanctification, it inflates being saved versus growing in Christ's likeness. That, that, ah, kind of all the same thing. I got to grow in order to be saved, and that's not true. Those two things are inextricably linked. You can't pull them apart. You can't be saved and not be growing, but they're not the same thing. You can't make them the same thing. They're distinct but connected. I do put forth effort in my sanctification, meaning my growing in Christ likeness. I do not add anything to my justification, meaning being saved by Jesus, redeemed by Christ. Galatians is the best book in the Bible to look at for all this. is the book written against legalism. Look at this, verse two, chapter 2, verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. No one. Verse, chapter 3, verse 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, meaning by doing the moral good. The righteous shall live by faith. And then he has a harsh warning. Paul has a harsh warning for anybody who twists this. Twists this doctrine of sola fide. He says in Galatians 1.9, As I have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Now, that word accursed doesn't just mean let him have a bad day. It means let that person be condemned forever. If you're going to warp the gospel, that's a heavy, heavy warning. So legalism can't avoid that. We can't fall into that ditch. But there's another ditch on the other side of the road. It's called antinomianism. Now, many of us are bent towards maybe more easygoing, non-critical, just kind of acceptance. I'm okay, you're okay, as long as you're down with the J-man upstairs, we're fine. I mean, if that's you, if that's us, I mean, we can be in this ditch called antinomianism if we're not careful. Now, what that word means, you probably never heard of it before, it's just antinomianism means anti-law, anti-rules, against law, that, that there's nothing that we need to do whatsoever in justification or sanctification. It, it, it's cut, it cuts down saving faith, that three, content, assent, and uh, trust, to just content. If you just know the facts, and you like them, and they don't make you mad, then you're fine. You're saved. That's, that's what an antinomian is going to say, that no change needs to take place in your heart. You can be an unrepentant believer. You can be an unregenerated Christian. And it's not as easy to sniff this out in your own heart or in other people. Uh, because it blends in, because they're not adding any works. So it sounds like sola fide. But the best way to do it is just pull up some key Bible verses. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. It's gone. Behold, something else is in its place. Something new has come. Are you new? What does it mean to be new and completely out of the old? That's what true justification does. Now, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 sounds pretty good to an antinomian. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it's not of yourselves. 
is a gift of God, not as a result of works that no one may boast. They love that. They're like, yes, yes, yes. But then verse 10 comes right behind verse 9, and it says this, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We didn't make ourselves saved by adding our good works, but Jesus saved us in order that we would participate in good works. And then you got a passage like this, James 2, 17 and following. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. This is how. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. It's like you believe the facts about God, way to go. Demons believe that. But they don't have any personal trust in it. God's saying in this passage, I haven't given you the ability to see somebody's heart. That's not your realm. That's my realm, says God, especially 1 Samuel 7 or 16 verse 7. I look at hearts, you don't look at hearts. But in amongst yourselves, you say you have faith without the works. I'll show you my faith by my works. It's evidence of it. But if we just say, yeah, I'm, I'm cool with God. I know who God is. That's great. Demons know that, but they don't have any personal trust. It's not saving faith. You just have demonic faith. And Westminster Confession, again, succinctly defines it like this. It says, faith, thus receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness, is the alone instrument of justification. Yet it is not alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied with all other saving graces and is no dead faith, but worketh by love. See, this is what it comes down to, is a distinction between the law of God and the gospel of God. If we put those two too far apart, and if we put them too close together, then we get into one of those ditches. If we say, you know what, we're going to buckle down, and, and I'm going to just do my best, and I'm going to make it in, well, now you're living by law, and no one's saved by law. But if you're like, yeah, God just saves anybody who just has fuzzy feelings towards him whatsoever, well, now you're, you're trying to say gospel, but you're missing the gospel. See, the law's purpose, the Old Testament law, all this back here, all 613 of those laws have a lot of purposes, one of which is to drive us to the cross. You're supposed to read Genesis through Deuteronomy and say, this is impossible. <laughs> I can't do any of this. I didn't even make it past the first 10, let alone the other 603. What am I going to do? It should drive you to the foot of the cross. I need you to do something for me, God. Romans 3.20, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since, why? Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law proves to me beyond a shadow of a doubt that I need a savior. I cannot be as good as God. I, but I read those and I'm driven to the cross. However, the gospel that saves doesn't negate the law. Look at Romans 3.31. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Jesus himself, Matthew 5, 17, do not think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. As Christians, is it still good for us to keep God's law? I mean, are we free to murder or commit adultery or build idols? No, I mean, of course it's good to do those things. Of course, that's what God would want us to do. Of course, we should be striving for holiness in our personal lives, but we do so under the gospel not under the law, because the law says, do this and live. The gospel says, Jesus has done this. Believe in him and live. He's already done this for you. See, the moral law directs our lifestyle as Christians, but the gospel gives and guarantees us eternal life, and that comes through faith alone. So in closing, I want you to think about why, why is this precious to us? Why is sola fide, why is faith alone so precious? The first time I ever heard this taught, I had an iPod, headphones in my ears. I was listening to Tommy Nelson in Denton Bible Church explain this, and it was like the, the 1996 version. He's done it who knows how many times. But when he explained all of it and poured so deeply into it, it was, it was just like eye-opening. And then I watched the, the DVD series that R.C. Sproul taught on this one thing. It's like three DVDs. And uh, he just, 20-minute sections, talks about this. It just, it squared me up with God. I know who I am, and I know who God is. 
I know the width of that chasm, an infinite chasm. He bridged it to me. And I get all of Jesus' righteousness just by faith? And I can't add anything to it? And, he's, and it would be sin to add anything to it? And God's saying, don't add anything to it? So what do I, what do, I do now? All I can do is worship. All I can do is praise Him. All I can do now is enjoy, like meaning out of joy, go and serve Him. Not out of fear, like, I got to do this, otherwise I'm going to be condemned. But I can do this because I have been saved. And this is just an exhilarating gospel truth. We have reasons to tell other people, trust in Jesus for salvation. Not just kind of, well, it's kind of what we know. That this makes us feel humbled, but then lifted up to the heights of heaven at the same time. Sola fide is perhaps the grandest distinction between the faith of the Bible and the faith of every other false religion and their religious texts. Why? Because no other religion is bold enough to go so far as to say, yeah, you can be right with the deity just by belief, just by faith. That's too scandalous. I mean, if you're a cult leader and you're making up your own religion, are you going to do that? How are you going to keep your people in line? How are you going to make them do what you want them to do? How are you going to make them give to the offering boxes if there's not some fear of judgment coming upon them? But the Bible says this is how God has done it. It is not by works. No one's going to be saved by works in God's eyes, but by faith in his son, Jesus. We don't fear a capricious God. We don't earn our deity's favor. We hold this truth up because it shows us the heart of God. He didn't compromise himself and his righteousness on one iota but nevertheless extends to us eternal salvation through faith in his son. And that's it. Full stop. Wonderful. Let's pray.